Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC FM, and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning, and we are pleased to be joined by David McGuire. He is executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. Good morning to you, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, police accountability is a hot topic at the state capitol. Legislation is pending that would change in a number of ways how police in Connecticut interact with the community. And uh, David, what are your thoughts on this? What are the broad strokes of this legislation? Well, it's a, a very large piece of legislation, and it has you know some components that get it right, others that don't quite get it right. But ultimately, it is what we see as a, as a small step forward in ending police violence in here in Connecticut. What is significant about it is that you're seeing agreement across the political spectrum that police violence is not just a, an issue in other places like Minneapolis or Atlanta, it's also a real issue here in Connecticut, and um, we are weighing in on several aspects of the bill. And we should note, as we are speaking, the the exact language of the bill is still being worked out, but in your view, what are the good parts of it? Well, there, there are a handful of things in this bill that uh, really do respond, at least at some level, to some concerns that the public has had around policing. Um, one is around the creation of a new prosecutor that will essentially have one thing to do, and that is to investigate and prosecute police that hurt or kill people. And that is a significant step forward. Um, it's titled an inspector general. It would be uh, really something very, very new here and would I think, be a step towards creating some real independence. If, if you all remember, back in 2015, the legislature passed a, a very large police accountability bill after um, Ferguson. And one of the components was making sure that investigations into police killings be sent to an out-of-jurisdiction prosecutor. And over the last five years, we've seen that that really has not done the trick to create what many view as fair and impartial investigations. Um, and this is the next attempt to move to have r- some real distance. Um, I would note that you know we really would like this to be a completely independent office that's not in any way connected to the Division of Criminal Justice, which is where our prosecutors are housed. But unfortunately, our state constitution is very, very restrictive, and power to prosecute must flow from the Division of Criminal Justice. So this bill tries to get as far as it can to create independent 
investigation and prosecution of police violence. Now, another component would give more power to civilian police review boards at the local level. How important is that? So that that is something that um, could be very useful if there is the political will at a municipal level to create a strong oversight board. It would allow those boards to have subpoena power, which would give them the ability to you know, get documents and really do proper investigations and serve their oversight function. Um, there are many different forms of these oversight boards in Connecticut. None are especially effective. Some are more effective than others, but this can be a, a real tool for these boards to uh, hold police accountable at the local level, which is ultimately really what needs to happen. Uh, policing is a local issue. It should up to, uh, be really be up to town townspeople to determine what they want the police to look like, the size of the department, what they do, and also hold them accountable when they abuse um, their power in towns and cities. So that is a significant piece that there are many folks excited are excited about. This measure also lays out a process for decertification of officers who have had a a history of trouble interacting with the public. Uh, tell us more about that. So there are several changes here that essentially try to retool the post council, which is the council <clears throat> that oversees the certification of, of police officers. Um, the, there would be a change in the composition of that council. It would still be very, very law enforcement heavy, which gives us some concerns. But the idea is to make it more of a real possibility that officers, when they do wrong, can be decertified. And that is that is something that needs to happen. Really, you know, police are in a unique um, situation as a profession that is really not regulated in the same ways that others are. If you if you look to things like um, doctors or lawyers or uh, cosmetologists, they have oversight boards um, that will and do regularly strip those professionals of their ability to do their job. That really doesn't happen in policing here in Connecticut. Um, very few officers are certified, decertified, and it's typically for off-the-job misconduct. So if it works, it'd be great. We have some concerns about some of the setup, but I think ultimately um, the legislature's thinking in, in the right way. Are there some components of the bill you find troubling? Well, there there are some components of the bill that we think are are really not hitting the nail on the head in the right way. So one thing that you hear a lot about, and you'll read about it in the reports that prosecutors do into police violence, uh, is around uh, the use of force standard, essentially the standard that police are judged by when they use force. And the standard right now is incredibly narrow. It really looks at just the moment where the officer uses that force and determines whether the officer feared for his or her or the public safety. Um, that really neglects a lot of the incident. It neglects the, the previous sometimes 15 or 20 minutes of an incident where there, you know, there could have been an opportunity to de-escalate or avoid the use of force. Um, so this, this is something that we think also needs to be changed to reflect that police need to only use that force when absolutely necessary. Um, the bill does do some changes to the use of force standard, but what we think um, is a, a change that really is not significant and will not change outcomes. So this is one of the areas where there's a glaring um, oversight, because this is an area that could really reform the way that police do their jobs if they know there's really a, a viable criminal threat um, if they do 
misuse their power. And the use of force standard piece in this bill really just does not get at that. One of the, the hot topics of this measure that, that's still being debated as we speak is the matter of qualified immunity, which basically gives officers protection from being sued personally for their conduct on the job. Where does the ACLU of Connecticut stand on that? So we and several other organizations stand um, very strongly in favor of the complete abolition of qualified immunity. You know, qualified immunity as as a doctrine has developed um, in a way that is is really problematic in that it completely insulates um, individual officers and really municipalities from any liability when uh, police hurt people or violate their rights. Um, we think that there ought to be a meaningful threat of civil litigation when there's a, a violation of someone's rights. Um, one mi- really big piece of misinformation that's been getting out there, largely from the law enforcement lobby, is that if the state does wind back qualified immunity or eliminate it, there will be police officers who will either not want to stay on the job, they'll retire, um, or they will not want to work for police because they'll be scared of their own individual liability if qualified immunity is abolished. Um, that is just a complete false argument. Uh, there is a very, very robust statute in Connecticut that provides that municipalities must indemnify police officers in, in cases where they're where they're found guilty, uh, found guilty, and you know, basically found to be liable in a civil case. We are, we are trying to push back on that and encourage the legislature to create real liability. And and really, what it will do, Aaron, is it will create an incentive for municipalities to hire better, to train better, and to get rid of officers that are problematic as to save themselves from being found liable and and having to pay out court awards. And that is a good thing. That's a natural balance that we need to get back to that just does not exist right now. Pushing back, we hear from members of the law enforcement community who say, you know, if qualified immunity is eliminated, some officers may not be as quick to to jump in and and help when help is required. How would you respond to that? Again, I that is that is a false argument in that the standard for use of force is not changing dramatically and the the litigants would still have to meet the same very high threshold to be able to win a case. This just means that the case get, does not move forward because of the qualified immunity. And even if they it did move forward, um the reality is that they will not themselves, the officers, have to pay out of pocket for any awards or attorney's fees. So that's that is the that is the the root of it. You know, yes, we do, we police officers do need to make split second decisions, and they can't be second guessing or thinking about being sued. But at the same time, there needs to be meaningful recourse for people and redress if they're hurt. And again, because of the indemnification provisions in state law, there's really no. There's no threat to individual officers being harmed financially themselves. Are you aware of other jurisdictions that have done away with qualified immunity? I know during testimony on this measure, there was some talk about Colorado, which I believe has a has a cap on civil awards that police officers would have to pay out of pocket. Right. So Colorado uh, most recently addressed this in a way that you know really does not get to the heart of it. It acknowledges the harms of qualified immunity and winds it back a bit. Um, but, you know, Connecticut is having a bold conversation around this um, in a way that we really haven't seen in other places in the country. And that and that is to be commended. It is a very, very loaded topic in that you're having a lot of uh, police chiefs and police lobby 
uh, lobbyists come out and say, we really can't do this. Um, but I, I believe that in order to end police violence in Connecticut, you know, it's really all three of these things have to happen. There needs to be meaningful civil liability, and it's largely on the part of municipalities, so they'll do their job in overseeing their police employees. Some form of credible criminal liability for officers that really abuse or, or hurt people, um, and that may be accomplished through the in inspector general piece. Um, and then the other is that you have to be able to meaningfully lose your ability to do your job if you if you don't play by the rules. And that's what the decertification gets at. So I think all three of these are really important to have um, out there as meaningful consequences to make sure that police who have extraordinary power, they have a very dangerous job and it is in many ways a thankless job, but they also have the power to detain people and use deadly force, which is unique. And with great power comes great responsibility. So outside of Colorado, are there other jurisdictions who, who've done this in terms of qualified immunity or would Connecticut be first? I'm not aware of any others that have taken it on and completely abolished it. This is really a conversation that's just started to accelerate in the last um, year or so. And obviously the, the murder of George Floyd has reignited some conversations around it. Um, but, you know, there have been conversations about how this doctrine has really gotten out of control and is now really a shield that is cannot be penetrated by civil litigants. And that that is that is really unfair and, again, results in bad conduct because when a town knows that they, they have virtually no exposure to civil liability for officers that hurt people, it's really not in their, their interest to to train them or oversee them properly. And that, that creates a bad situation for everyone. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to David McGuire, executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. L let's talk a little about the police accountability bill in, in terms of how it might change things in terms of use of deadly force investigations. This past week, we saw the report on the killing of Edward Gendron. He was a gentleman in Waterbury who was fatally shot by a local police officer about six months ago after police were called to his duplex for reports of bullet holes in the wall and ceiling from his, his neighbor police center and find him with a gun and he refuses to drop it according to authorities and he is fatally shot by police. And we see in the investigation that the use of deadly force was justified, and the only other officer at the scene at the time of the shooting refused to talk to investigators and, and basically gave what investigators call a, a grossly incomplete report a month and a half after the fact. How might things like that change under this accountability bill? Well, that's a complicated one. I mean, ultimately, what was, what was the deep problem in the analysis of that case was the fact that um, the use of force standard again is so so difficult to meet that it, it was it, it was very easy for the state's attorney in that case to say it was justified use of force. So that's one thing I just want to hold up and highlight. The other is that um, the gentleman that ended up being killed was someone who it was noted in the report had profound disabilities, and this is not this is not a, a rarity. Unfortunately almost half of the folks that are killed by police have a disability um, of some kind, you know, you know, mental or physical. And this is a real issue that we need to grapple down. 
in terms of the officers who are not complying, um, part of that may be addressed through the inspector general office because this will be an office that <clears throat> really has a sole duty and that and 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 charge, which is to investigate these types of cases. Um, and they will not be compromised in terms of their uh, their ability to push hard for information and for uh, for testimony when needed. This this is not the case now because the prosecutors that are looking into the cases currently work with law enforcement every day on their other cases, which they have to. I mean, that, that's how they do their job. Those are their witnesses and those are the people um, who, who have affected those arrests. So that's a major step forward. There is some talk about giving the inspector general subpoena power. And that's something that you might think that we would be in favor of, but we're not. Um, back in the in the 70s and 80s, there were there there was investigatory subpoena power granted to prosecutors, and it was misused. And there was an effort made by the legislature to take that power away. And for the past, really as long as I've been at the ACLU lobbying, there's almost every year a push by the state's attorneys to get investigatory subpoena power. Um, the Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, the ACLU, and the public defenders have staved that off every year because we're worried that without some judicial oversight, that police will go on essentially fishing expeditions and target you know certain people unfairly. There is you know a complicated balance here to be struck. We don't want investigators to be hamstrung and not be able to get the information they need to do investigations, but at the same time, we don't want to open the floodgates to a situation where police can ask anyone for anything on just a hunch of wrongdoing. So it's a very complicated topic that the legislature is taking up. But I, in, in answer to your question, I think the inspector general will be a, a major step forward in these types of investigations. Also being taken up by the legislature is the issue of absentee voting. And you, you noted where to put the inspector general's office is kind of hamstrung by the state constitution. Absentee voting also hamstrung by the state constitution. It is. We have a very, very restrictive constitution when it comes to to voting rights, which is why Connecticut has tried for many years to institute early voting. Um, and similarly, why there are very, very narrow reasons that people can vote by absentee ballot. So as you probably recall, Governor Lamont put in place an executive order to allow for no excuse absentee voting for the primary. Uh, we have filed a lawsuit on behalf of the NAACP of Connecticut and the League of Women Voters of Connecticut seeking to have the federal court find that there is, in fact, a fundamental right to vote that will be infringed because of COVID-19. People should not have to choose between their, their health and their right to vote. The legislature has also taken up that issue, and there is a bill that's in play that would essentially create an exception and allow people to vote absentee ballot in the November election because of COVID. And we think that that it makes a lot of sense, Aaron, because the reality is we're seeing a surge of COVID-19 through many states in the country. And it's very possible that we have a, a fall or winter surge ourselves here. So uh, we need the, the legislature to step up and pass a bill that will clarify that people can vote by absentee ballot in November. Is it kind of a, a gray area because of the state constitution? One of the reasons you can give for, for getting an absentee ballot is sickness, but it doesn't explicitly say the threat of sickness. Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the trick. Our, our statute is actually that it en en enables the constitution. That provision is actually more restrictive than the constitutional language itself and has this his or her illness language, um, which implies that it's the person's own illness, when really 
what we're talking about here is a collective illness. I mean, we're in the time of a pandemic. So um, we are, we, there, you know, there's a couple different ways the legislature might take this up, but one is to potentially just remove the his or her and just say because of illness, and illness can be interpreted broadly as, again, the, the collective state's illness, which we certainly are under right now. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, our constitution has thrown us a couple of curveballs in terms of it being very, very prescriptive and preventing some things from happening that we need to happen. The legislature has to weigh in. The secretary of the state has also taken some heat, mainly from Republicans, for sending out absentee ballot applications to every eligible voter for the, the primary. And she plans to do this the same, I believe, for the November election. Does the ACLU have a stance on that? There may be some confusion around it um, because people are hearing different things about an executive order and a lawsuit in the legislature and other states and what they're doing. Um, but no, we think that's the right move with proper public education. And if the legislature does act this in the next week on this, there will be enough time to educate people to understand that you will be getting one of these in the mail um, and you have to check an appropriate box to be eligible and you can use it. I mean, I think the concern was confusion, but the concern around voter fraud that has been raised by some is just a a total non-factor. That is not a concern. Um, We should make it as easy for people to vote and as safe as people for the Moving on to uh, another topic, we've seen the the unrest in in Portland, Oregon, and we heard from President Trump this past week that he he plans to send federal law enforcement authorities into other major cities across the country where he says there's, there's been a lot of crime. And we have heard reports from Portland that, you know, some protesters were being put into unmarked vans. Earlier in Washington, we we heard reports of federal law enforcement officers with no identification refusing to give their identification. Does that raise any sort of alarm bells with you? It raises huge alarm bells. I mean, that that federal response is deeply problematic. It creates issues where people's rights are being violated on the ground. And it also creates a lot of confusion for the public. The fact that they were not being clear about what they were doing or why or who they were really undermines the public's confidence in law enforcement. It's very, very problematic. I know that our our sister affiliate out, out there has been involved in pushing back. Um, that is absolutely something that should not happen in any Connecticut towns or cities. In this age of, of COVID-19, I, I know certain things have been curtailed by executive order. Have there been any other actions related to the pandemic that you find concerning at the ACLU if they were to remain in place for a long period of time or even for a short period? Well, one topic that's uh, one that's been in the news a bit this week is the fact that many towns, shoreline towns, are enacting very restrictive beach access policies, which um, are policies that are not are not driven by science. You know, there there are clear reasons and justifications for limiting the number of people on the beach to make sure that people are socially distancing and staying safe. Policies where you're excluding people from out of town are not are not based in science or public health. They're, re- they're really political. And we know that shoreline towns in Connecticut have a, a long history of trying to keep people from other towns and particularly other people that don't look like them out of their beaches. So we, are, we are, have been involved in trying to convince these municipalities that they ought to create fair rules that are applied equally to everyone that are driven by science and not politics. It really is, when you talk to people out west in California, a foreign concept, limiting beach access. It, it seems that 
on the West Coast, people have a much broader interpretation of public beach access. We have a Supreme Court of Connecticut case from 2001 that sets out very clearly that folks have an express have a, a right from a First Amendment perspective to be on a public beach and that it is a traditional public forum. Uh, COVID obviously complicates things, but again, I I truly believe that. The justification that someone from out of town should not be able to come because of COVID just doesn't hold up. The number limit does, and that 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 does make some good sense. So, you know, we're hearing from some people that are upset about those those policies. And and the good news is that the municipalities of across the board, I believe, said these are temporary. But to your earlier question about things that are being done, and we're worried about them being done in a longer frame. What we really don't want to see is municipalities say, well, you know, it worked so well, it, we didn't have any outbreaks on the beach. We're just going to continue this policy um, on forward. And that that is deeply problematic. So we are keeping an eye on that situation. He is David McGuire, executive director of the ACLU of Connecticut. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me again, Aaron. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.